Mandeep Sandhu, Punjabi writer and journalist, is our guest on today's program. We spoke at his time as artist in residence at Schloss Solitude. In our conversation, we discuss his novels, Sepia Leaves, as well as Roll of Honor, which touch on taboo themes such as terrorism and mental illness. In our chat, he also speaks about his third novel, which he's currently working on. Stay tuned to hear more about Amandeep Sandhu, his autobiographical and personal insights. Amandeep Sandhu, welcome to English Breakfast. Thank you so much for coming by today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me here. Residence in Schloss Solitude here in the area in Stuttgart, a well-known author. You recently had a book reading, actually a few book readings. What were some of the themes of the evening? The reading at Solitude itself was part of the Indian festival and it was my first reading in Europe. I had never read my own text in Europe and it was very new to me. And uh, I was unsure if the audience would get me, you know, because the themes I write about, the topics I choose to write about are very local in India they are big issues and they have universal connections but i pick certain very local stories and i didn't know if the audience would be able to make the leap with me to understand what i was talking about but i was so heartened that it the, both the readings went very well the reading a few days back was at the theater festival at stuttgart and here we focused more on the second book because it deals with the idea of terrorism mm-hmm. and that was the theme of the festival and again yesterday's reading was very very good and i'm just amazed that it doesn't really take too much to communicate with each other you know you feel all these barriers of language of ethnicity of different countries but when you actually start speaking you can talk and just that knowing that makes me feel so good. Well, I think there's something about that live performance. Obviously, a book is something that's also quite intimate and gives you a look into another world, another way of being often. We have several books that you've brought in today. Sepia Leaves and A Roll of Honor. Currently, you're working on a new book. Yes. During your residency, is that a similar theme? The real issue in Sepia Leaves is schizophrenia, it's mental illness. Mm-hmm. The theme for Role of Honor, the central issue is the separatist movement in my part of the country where my community wanted to break off from my nation and uh, what happens to an adolescent in that period. And the theme for the third book is actually memory because I'm trying to see my my character is exploring conserving an old ruin and making a memorial to the partition of india and pakistan which happened in 1947 and it then employs various moves on the part of the character to because this is something i feel missing in our our approach to how we live like when i come to europe i see so many memorials so many monuments so much restoration so many reminders of what 
the country has gone through. But in South Asia, we just don't do that. And I wonder why. I wonder why we don't have memorials to things. We don't remember our histories. You know, the first line in Auschwitz is that if you've forgotten your history, you are condemned to repeat it. It's by George Santayana. And we are repeating the same mistakes in South Asia again and again. Don't we learn? So here is a guy who is trying to make a monument to the partition of India, which is which is one of the ghastliest things that happened in the last century in the subcontinent. Maybe you could tell us a bit about your cultural background and give us a little bit of context into some of the different communities there and how they approach, let's say, these, these issues. Yeah, it, it's uh, sort of strange that uh, when we think of India, we think of it as one country. With many and, different languages. Uh, yes, <laughs> but when we think of Africa, we almost think of it as one country. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in size, India is almost the same size as Europe. And it has almost as many nations as Europe has. And it has been an European Union for the last 70 years, while European Union came about around 20 years back. Mm-hmm. So there were reasons why. And, and in history, in, in cultural history, in oral narratives, India has been an idea for the last 3,000 years. So the dominant religion in India is Hinduism. But then there is a huge Muslim population. There is a there are other communities, and I am from one of those minority communities in India. I am a Sikh, and the Sikh religion is maybe less than two percent of India's population. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think the Christian population is around four to five percent. Oh, okay, even yeah, more. So there are more Christians mm-hmm. than Sikhs, and Muslims are around nineteen percent, and the rest of them are not all Hindus, but there are various other. Uh, so, and it's a country which has 26 official languages. Official languages? Uh, yes. And how because, many in, in all, do you think? Oh, my, a friend of mine is working on the loss of languages. And I think the last count he gave me was 768 languages. <gasps> yeah, but but we are losing, worldwide, we are losing around 10,000 languages every decade. I mean, that's an am- an amazing amount of culture and diversity if you're thinking of so many languages yes. and perspectives because yes. language gives you a perspective how we communicate that's incredible but in india language change i mean the, not the language but the register or the dialect changes every 18 kilometers you know that's that's how much diversity there is in india and why do you think that there i mean this is just totally off topic but why do you think there are so many languages? Do you think that people didn't move that much before? Yes, I think uh, I was at the Benz Museum two, three days back, and I realized how much change between the 1800s and 1900s. And that that decade change was not only the invention of the car, but also of X-ray, also of telephone, also of books, also of uh, franchisee for women, rights within democracy, and migration. Huge migrations started happening in that century, mm-hmm. that turn of century. But in India, if we look at India's history, we almost skipped the industrial age. We moved from an agrarian society till the 1950s to suddenly into a service-based economy today. 
So we have not gone through those three, four hundred years of European pangs of industrialization. By the time we were ready as a nation, we just got European countries to come and set up plants for us and big steel factories. And, and sepia leaves actually deals with that. It deals with how Germany set up a plant in East India, a steel plant in the town in which I was born. And my father was working in that plant. And here we have the connection. That's one of the big questions that, of course, comes up is how does an Indian author come to Germany as residents in Schloss Solitude? And one of the themes is obviously this connection to that town. Yes. In fact, just because I was born in a German town in India, I traveled to Germany a few years back to, to see the landscape, you know, because... There were structures in my town, huge industrial go-downs, you know, sheds made out of, in India it is tin, here it was asbestos, now it is different material. And, but I never found those structures in other parts of my country. So I said, where does this architecture come from? And it's, I remember taking the train from Frankfurt to Nuremberg, which is where my friend lived. And on the way, I started seeing those structures. And I said, my God. In fact, the name Raurkela of the town where I was born also comes from the Ruhar Valley. It's uh -huh. Ruharkela. Uh -huh. so, so, and actually, I am here because of Baden-Württemberg's uh, program, which has been running for 25 years. This is the 25th year. And Schloss Solitude has had around 1,200 artists in the last 25 years come, and come here and it's it's a very prestigious uh, institution which I'm so glad the state runs it because there's hardly anything in the world which is 25 years old and doing well you know like so but uh, my reason to come here was because I applied and they invited me but I the, the German connection was in the back of my mind mm -hmm. It is when I came here and we were writing the Solitude Atlas in which we all fellows are writing where we come from. Ah, oh, that That's when I made this explicit connection. And I said, my God, I'm actually completely from a German town. I studied in a kindergarten, you know, which is what primary school and nursery schools are called here, you know. And the, the road systems, the houses, so much is a legacy of Germany's involvement with India in the 1950s when our Prime Minister had invited various countries to, to set up plants in India. This World Atlas at Schloss Solitude, it's a collaboration from all the different artists that have come to visit. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, we are launching it on the July 18th because that's okay. when we celebrate our 25 years. But yeah, it is the director, Mr. Jean-Baptiste Jolie's idea. And it's sort of, it is actually a memorial to, to solitude, you know, like it's a monument we are creating. And uh, if you look at the website, you can now see we have revamped it, the whole network of fellows and from which all parts of the world, I think 127 nations, Wonderful. 1,200 fellows in the last 25 years. And everybody has spent anything from three to... 12 months at the Schloss and this is a generation which is around the age of 35 so so it is it comes early in your life as an artist but I see it as it comes at 
almost the first quarter of your life as an artist and it's a very good time for reflection and to see why we are artists what we are doing is it going the right way is something needs to change and there is no demand made on us by the state by the institution nobody says anything it's time for you it's a lovely schloss just be here so you can muse a little bit yeah <laughs> enjoy and contemplate and i guess with the other artists i'm sure that if you have connections with the other artists then also new ideas can come about new inspiration no, yeah, no, no a lot of collaboration work happens mm-hmm. last night we were having a barbecue and i was just looking at it there were like people from at least 15 nations and everybody talking to each other everybody communicating everybody sharing expressing it was one person's birthday and when the cake came out i think there were seven types of happy birthdays sung to her you know it's like so beautiful to mm. see this world community come together lovely lovely so that's today this intercultural yes. network yes. of artists living in schloss solitude and being able to contemplate and work on your next novel how did things start for you did you always know that you wanted to be an author how did you know that this was something that you wanted to pursue see in the steel town called raurkela in india something else changed in the country this is the first time that we started setting up societies based on nuclear families Mhm. Until then people lived in joint families maybe your place of birth and place of death was within a 20 km radius you know most people lived with it. but with industrialization with the prime minister nehru calling for talent to come to these towns to build steel or build other things like cement like you know whatever uh work on dams my father who is from punjab which is in north india he traveled down 2500 kilometers to live in this town in the east coast of india and his neighbor was a person of a different language maybe a different religion uh, the other side neighbors so all of them were small tiny families nuclear families living in these houses next to each other with no common cultural heritage with no common sharing no bonding except what was i think a socialism manufactured thing called picnics which would happen on sundays where families would go out to the parks but there was no bonding with each other but the other side of it is that my mother was schizophrenic and my home was actually dysfunctional so i was trying in my childhood to find a home for myself and the home i would find was in comic books in children's stories because those would be spaces where there would be peace mm. in the home there were fights so i don't know when the conscious decision to start writing came but but the fact that books and language can be home did start coming at that time now in language also there is an a small thing here because I grew up in a mixture of four languages. What which languages, man? Yeah. So there is my parents' mother tongue which is Punjabi. But to me Punjabi was the language of fights. Mm, okay. Yeah. And I was brought up by a maid who spoke Odia 
which was the language of the state where we were growing. So this maid taught me Odia. And when I would go out on the streets to play with other children, they would speak Hindi, which is the dominant language of India. And when I would go to the kindergarten, I would learn English. Okay. So there were four languages. I was, I was at sort of an intersection of four languages. So sensibilities are shaped in very different ways when you shape them out of one language boundary. So you... You learn to express, say, the table, the chair, hunger, tears, in four different ways. So it's it's beautiful. And when you're writing, what language do you write in? When you write to yourself before something's published, what language are you thinking in, or are you are you writing in, or different languages for different parts, or how did how is the process for you? Yeah, so that is where it it's. Uh, I chose to write in English. Because English was always the language in which the world came together to me. In other languages, it was like I was dealing with the world. But my education was in English. And in a syllabus, with a teacher, in a classroom, they are putting things together for you. So my logic, my logical language is English. Mm-hmm, a structured language. A structured language. Mm-hmm. But I realize that even now if I get angry or sad... When I get sad, I go into Punjabi. When I get angry, I go into Hindi. You know, so, and I love speaking Odia, but I also know like two or three other Indian languages. So it's just a lot of language, which is very beautiful. I mean, it's lovely, but but my reasoning language, my logical language, even my emotional language is English. And that's why I write in English. So you had this connection earlier on and a safe haven in some ways through books, through through language. When did you know that you had a talent for it? When did you start really writing yourself? So you had this affinity, but when when did it start for you? Oh, I, that that took a long time because I remember in my late adolescence and early youth trying to write and sitting with blank pages in front of me and crying because I didn't know how to write. So I just went through years of tears, you know, like I because... I think that's going to console a lot of artists out there yeah. that are in that, in that uh, yeah. situation right now. And my father was very conscious that I shouldn't grow up in a house where my mother was ill mm. because he wanted to give me an independent life. So he moved me to hostels and I grew up in boarding schools. And I would come home for like a guest for 15 days every six months, you know, and meet them and go and he was very conscious that he did not want to burden me with see this is also something that my generation in India has gone through uh, is that in the tradition of joint families we are supposed to take care of our parents yes but given the new age we cannot expect our children to take care of us you know so that is something that my generation is realizing alongside realizing that women are equal to men Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, which has also been a big thing for us. Right. I studied all over the country and I did my master's in a city, beautiful city called Hyderabad in one of the best universities in the country. And I started looking for where to go. So then I chose to come to Bangalore, which is in South India, mm-hmm. and start my life as a journalist. But I sh- oh. shifted to technical writing in the in the information technology industry because Bangalore was boom town. And uh, also I liked the work. 
also I could get space to do my own writing if I and this is now I'm 29 I'm still struggling to write I didn't know how to do it so were you freelancing no I, I was you working had a steady job steady doing job, technical yeah. language yes yeah. mm-hmm. yes okay and my father called me up once and said son we now need to come to you because I can't take care of your mother anymore and I realized something had happened and what had happened really was my my mother was this bright shining sun in the family and the whole focus was on her oh her madness mm-hmm. and my caretaker father's own sadness of life disappointments had got buried and had not found enough expression and his depression was now building up Yeah, that's very difficult to take care of a loved one as well. Yes. Yeah. So then they said we want to come and stay with you. I mean, you have to do something to to bridge this distance. They were they were 2000 kilometers away. And I said, "Okay, I'll buy a house and you come down to Bangalore and we will ensure that everything works for you." I still hadn't chosen to move in with them or live with them, but just take care, be around. And in the time they were taking to come down it took a few years i decided to understand my parents who are these people and that's how i started writing and the first book that's why is autobiographical even the second one is autobiographical but but this was the reason why it it hit me and i i think it is it's true about art about writing there unless you are really pierced by something you don't really burst out and and art is really a bursting out of sorts the actual themes within it are very personal themes and things that have touched your life and through the reflection of age i mean as a young child things are going around you only know the feelings of of what's happening and then afterwards you have that space to somehow reflect on it i mean the, when i started writing i realized that mental health in societies and and that's where this theme is personal but it also is universal and since the book there has been a lot of attention to the book and all that and i see mental health as a pyramid actually there are three corners there is one is the patient and the patient suffers i mean now there is tests proving that patients suffer you know it's not like they are not suffering themselves and putting the society to distress no they are also suffering so there is a patient but they have no agency they have no power in their hands they don't even have financial agency often mm-hmm. yes you know but then there is a psychiatrist who has the power to diagnose the power to label the power to prescribe medication the power to decide how much time the psychiatrist wants to spend with the patient or not and in a country like india with 1.3 billion people we have only 5000 psychiatrists mental health has also been one of those taboo subjects huge taboos so, it so, is in europe as well but i think more so no europe is much more open liberated, yeah. america it is fashionable to be <laughs> you know so but but in india it is taboo and and this is a taboo there is a stigma that i suffered and that's why i needed to write it out so there is a second corner of the pyramid which is the doctor the patient and the doctor the third is made up of the caregiver when i started to write i wanted to read everything that was written about it i mean i don't claim that i have read everything but i read a lot of important texts and i realized that there isn't a caregiver's point of view on mental illness anywhere 
And they're the angels of the earth. Yeah, but then Caregivers. that's such a nice word. But their life is really, really difficult. Because Many people who mm -hmm. are caregivers, friends of mine, I see how they have made immense compromises with their own life mm -hmm. just because they have a sibling or a parent or a child who is ill. Yes, and a lot of the time yeah. it's behind closed doors and nobody realizes the pain that they have and the giving that they give. That's why I say they're the angels on earth. Yes, I they mean are. That yes. Because they no, are no, I, I completely agree. Yeah. But then I thought angels also have stories. Mm -hmm. right? Yes. And let's talk about the angels' story Wonderful. here. Mm -hmm. And that's why the book clicked in that sense. Because the, when I was growing up and I used to take my mother to the doctor as a small boy, and I write about it also, I would be stunned by what the doctor would do. And the doctors were right. They were not wrong, you know. But but it was like my mother is all raving, ranting, in mania. And I have taken her there and they have given her an injection or a tablet. And she has become a vegetable, you know. So this raving, ranting mother was more real to me than the vegetative mother. Though this raving, ranting mother was angry often, but to me she was... She was real, you know, and and this normal looking but not speaking and dazed eyes mother was like a corpse to me. I would like, what do I do with her? You know, the other one is so flashy. She breaks windows. She throws things. You know, she messes up lives. I like that power of her. And I turned anti-psychiatry. I said, God, this pill is the wrong thing, you know. And then through the process of writing, in fact, I remember getting out of my medical exam, knowing maybe your earlier question is like at 19, I was sitting down to write an exam for the medical entrance examination in India. And that time I got up from the seat and I said, no, if I become a doctor, I'll become a psychiatrist. And if I become a psychiatrist, I don't agree with what they do. So I will not become a psychiatrist. I will become something else. So I walked out of that exam. And when the book came out, it was a psychiatric community in India which first accepted it. It got a glowing review in a newspaper and then the Indian Psychiatric Society picked up the book and said, yes, this is the account of caregiving that we need to create. And many more caregivers should write. In fact, even today, the biggest compliment I get from readers is just thank you. That their story is in some ways also being told. Yes. Hmm. And they say, every time they say, we didn't know we had a story. Ooh. And people love to live in stories. Mm. You know? Yeah. And that, that's, that's how we change the world as yes. well and how we connect with one another. So, Sepia Leaves is about a child growing up in a dysfunctional family. But when I started writing it, I realized who should be my villain? You know, because you're creating a story, you have to put good versus bad. And I said, my mother can't be evil. So I can't write an us versus them story ever. So where do I stand then and tell the story? So I decided to use a dual narrative. So in this story, there is the child to which things are happening and the child as an adult who is now looking back and thinking about those things. And the event of the story takes place on the night the father has died. So the evening the father dies, next morning he would be cremated. And this is the night in which mother and son actually stand alongside, against each other, in all sorts of 
combinations to look at their lives. So that's where the story, and because I have been writing the draft and I even met publishers, but they said, oh, wait, you still need to work more. And then my father passed away. And it was like strange that he's passed away and I get the structure of my story, you know, like, so, so, so that book was done with the dual narrative. And I very much did not want my second book to be done with a dual narrative. I said, no way. You know, I know these writers become famous following a formulaic way of writing. Then they give birth to popular fiction genres. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to write a unique story. So I was very, like, really, I said, otherwise I have written the story I wanted to write. If I can't write the second story a new way, then I'm no good. Is it difficult after the first novel, it's got this reception, was it difficult to start again? I had actually started writing the draft of it much okay, earlier. You kept, yeah. Do you have a routine to your writing? Do you say, okay, I'm going to do this amount of hours or I'm going to... It's, it's normally morning hours, early morning hours. And I try to put down... I mean, I cut a lot later on. So, but I try to put down maybe a thousand, thousand five hundred words per day. And uh, if, I mean, at Solitude, I could do it because I'm now doing this full time. When I had a job, I naturally couldn't do this much. But uh, that's the kind of routine. But I mean, the first book was 600 pages in published form. It is like 187. The second book was 1500 pages in published form. It is 250. So, <laughs> so there has been huge editing. <laughs> so uh, I'm a very slow writer. I'm a very messed up writer. I don't even know how to form the correct sentences in English, you know, like, so I have to revise and revise. But that's anyway, what makes it special. Though. Yeah, it yeah. does. I mean, that's the first editor said, she said, nobody will write like this. But then nobody will write like this, you yeah. know, like, yeah. so it has is, a special yeah, voice. Yes, it has mm -hmm. a voice. So then, I was very sure that one was this uh, praise that had come. Second was this expectation that publishing houses now had. Somebody gave me a blank check, said, give us your manuscript for the second book. And I said, the manuscript isn't complete. I can't give it to you. That's so pressure. I lost. That's pressure, I, though. Yeah, I lost <laughs> the blank check and whatever. So, but there was this thing that I had told myself that I'm not going to write the second book. And that is the period when my mother died. And that was intense caregiving for my mother because she was not only schizophrenic, it is after my father's death we discovered she was cardiomyopathic and she finally had stage 4 cancer. So I was like, somebody told me, they said, the worst illnesses of the world were contained within 6 inches of her chest. You know, like, was, yeah, that's true. And I went through a period of depression myself because I was just too worn out taking care of her. And it's also because my mother would not allow anybody else to touch her, to take care of her. So I couldn't hire a, a help. I couldn't hire anything. So, I mean, I remember six months not sleeping more than 15 minutes at a time, just constantly awake, having to monitor her. So anyway, so, so I had now a three struggle thing to go through. Expectations, publisher pressure, my own, this thing, and how to write the novel differently. The second novel is about violence and fear. Because my father, with his best intentions, sent me off to a nice boarding school 
to study. But the boarding school where I studied was in a state which was in conflict with the country. My community, the Sikhs, were fighting the country India for an independent nation for themselves, a nation, mythical nation called Khalistan. Okay. okay I haven't heard of this. So, yeah. So in, in 1984, the Indian army busted the Golden Temple, which is the Vatican of the Sikhs. And I was studying in this military school preparing to join the Indian Armed Forces. My goodness. And I was split as a teenager. Am I my religion first or my nation first? Am I a Sikh or am I an Indian? And then inside the boarding school, there was another level of uh, corporal punishment which had turned very ugly and it had become a power game. So I wanted to write the story where... I can get past my own fear of things that had happened. And twice guns got pulled on me. One was when... The, the story of the second book is about this sanitized school system where a lot of bad things are happening inside. And one of the best students comes back into the school and asks for sanctuary from the police outside which are on his lookout because he could have been a terrorist. So then students get influenced into this terrorism idea and one of them pulls a gun on, on me. And that was one aspect of gun pulling. The second was the police itself picked me up just because I looked Sikh. I had a turban, I had a sprouting beard and they gave me what the police can give anybody. And I, I was saved only because I had a military school identity card. Otherwise, I could have been dead. So it was from both sides. So from the state as well as from the people. Double bind. So how do I break through these levels of fear and confusions that have erupted in me? And I wanted to write the second book to heal from these wounds. And I did not want to do the dual language. So it took me almost three years of revisiting myself. And that journey was facilitated through music. Oh, through music. Yes. And, and, how did, how did yeah, that and through a certain understanding of Indian philosophy, which I encountered for the first time. So the music came when a friend of mine, she sent me a recording of her friend singing a 15th century poet in India when my mother was dying. She sent me these two. She said, just play them to your mother. She might feel good, you know. So I would play them and my mother started liking, listening to that soothing mu music. Then I went in search of this poet and a friend of mine was already on the search of this poet and... and this is actually something central to India, which is that in the 15th century, when Islam and the Mughals from Central Asia had invaded India, and India was already a Hindu country mostly, had been Buddhist earlier, mm -hmm. uh, there were these multiple religions had come about. And in different parts of the country, in the very south India, Tiruvallavur was writing, Basavanna was writing in Karnataka, Kabir was writing in central India. There were, there were a number of poets who were all writing in different geographies within the subcontinent without knowing about each other. But they were all trying to create 
an idea of God which is not bound by religion. Well, that sounds like a, a lovely idea. Yes. <laughs> and then I started looking at why did this idea fail? Mm-hmm. You know, like if there is this idea and there are so many people now buying into this idea, they like these, they, these people have become saints almost. But then why is there still all this conflict on religion? And that's where I realized that it's actually politics. The conflict is through politics. Mm-hmm. You know, religious beliefs and Sikhism itself as a religion tried to create a syncretic God. So in a polytheistic nation like India, they borrowed the idea from Islam that let's have a monotheistic God. But let us not give that God any attributes, physical or time or anything. So there is this idea of a monotheistic God, but you don't know whether it has a form or it is formless. And it is between this form and formless that Kabir was writing. So my journey to music became a journey to Kabir. Mm-hmm. But through another very, very senior singer in India, as a child, he was revered. He was like the best singer. People would throw everything at his concerts, even handkerchiefs and combs and goggles and money and everything. And then this boy got tuberculosis. Okay. This is the 1950s. And he was stopped from singing. And then he retired to a town to an sanatorium where he heard beggars singing, beggars singing Kabir. But he couldn't sing. And he lay on the bed for 15 years just convalescing. And then streptomycin was discovered. Then one lung of his which was completely infected was taken out. And when the second lung started healing, the doctors permitted him to start singing again. And when he started singing, this time he was the star of Indian classical music, but he started singing in the voice of those beggars mm. without form, only content. And that shaped man. This guy's name was Kumar Gandharv, and he's an icon of Indian music. So the critics were aghast. How can Kumar Gandhar sing like this? You know, there is no form to his music. It's losing the ego here. Mm -hmm. So, but he was singing the way he was singing. And he would also sing classical. And he said, why wouldn't this also be a genre of music? And somebody told me very beautifully, they said, what is water? Water has no form. But if you put the water in a bottle, the water does not really become not water. It remains water but it gets the form of the bottle. And that's how life is. We are human beings. We are like bottles in which we have life. So each of us is both. There is something essentially formless about us and there is a form about us. And it is when I reached this understanding, I realized that I was negatively fighting against myself for not using the dual form of narrative in my own book. So I went back to the dual form of narrative and I wrote out this story. And my position here, and who do I choose? My conflict still remains. Am I Sikh? Am I Indian? So I chose to be what George Orwell says, to be a witness and to write testimonial fiction. Because I don't know where, I mean, the Sikh community has not got justice for 25 years now after some genocide happened and the Golden Temple Mm -hmm. attack. Was there any statement from the government? This was from yeah, the yeah. Pa- there have been apologies, but the court cases have not been 
pushed through. There have been nine commissions and I think seven panels who have looked into the riots, but nobody has been really penalized. So it's all political. It's all... It's uh, so, just in so, the machinery. So the system of justice has failed them. But there is a court of the world. That we all belong to a court. There is a morality play going on in our lives in this cosmos. And as a writer, I feel I should just enter my record of my times in that. And what happens from it will happen. I mean, I, I'm sitting here and talking to you. That happens from it, you know. Yes, it, there's so, always ripple effects yes. from any anything that we do. Yes. So, But then to write testimonial fiction, and, and nobody had written about it. So, I, like, I tackled mental illness in the first one. I ended up tackling something because everybody is in denial. Families whose members died, families whose members became terrorists, families who killed neighbors, you know, because it was a sectarian conflict. Everybody has been quiet about it. It's a shame and there. It's a shame there. And I realized that I was actually writing about shame in the tradition of the earlier big shameful event in India, which was the partition of India. And that's where I feel the role of writers, the role of people who create language or work with language, is to speak about things which have not been spoken about. Because the world is changing so rapidly and our own writing abilities are coming down so drastically, you know, like we are writing, but how much of our input today and output is actually just visual? Oh, yeah. You know, that's oh, why gosh. radio is so important. Because it's like you listen to something. You close your eyes and just listen. You don't have to see the television. You don't, you don't have to read the book, you know. Just listen. Listen to yourself. Listen to your ears, what they're telling you. And that's what I find, I mean, uh, in, a, in a medium like this, it works on one sense, which is not, we are not using it enough. The li yeah, listening. And I think being able to hear different people's voices is very important. But books are more important. <laughs> it's yeah. more intimate. And then you have even more, with radio, you have more of a space than visual. Galleries are important because there's a space that's made. But in advertisement, it's very, very fast. And so you have no time to reflect. It's just react, react, react. What's wonderful about books is that you can reflect. You can take the time. You can read over a line. That's the beautiful part of it. And it's very an intimate yeah, medium. And, I, mean, I mean, very early on, I was yeah. like, I, I, like, how do books differ from, say, any other art form? You know, like, I, I was thinking to myself. And it is in exactly the ways you are defining it. I mean, a book is not a painting, you know, that you have to go somewhere to see. It's not a sculpture which is fixed somewhere and you have to go and see it. book can be taken anywhere, carried anywhere. It's not even like music, which if you have missed something, you have to either backtrack and go back and do things. Nowadays, in a cassette recorder, you could just press the rewind button, it would go back. In, in digital, in CDs, you, you have to go back to the previous song, you know. But with books, it is just so easy to do everything with it. You can lie down with it. You can sit up with it. You can walk with it. Yeah, it's, it's like it's, a campaign. To me, it is the most most intimate medium. And it is the cheapest to produce. You just need ink and paper. You know, that's all you need. Everything else is so much more. You know, friends of mine are filmmakers. And I'm like, 
I can yeah. never do this. I can never do this work, you know, like It's incredible how much work goes into just a minute of film or sometimes or, or even radio. I mean like how much editing we do here, which is important to be done. But with book writing it is simple. And I think more people should write and more people should write should personal read. things. And you don't have to make books all the time, but you must express what is innermost. To me that's I hope and with grace I hope it continues that I can I can go and look at subjects which are not being spoken about and try to bring language to them. Well, thank you so much for coming down. Amandeep Sandhu, it was a pleasure having you here on English Breakfast. If somebody would like to find out more information about some of the activities that you're undergoing and maybe get uh, in touch with you or one of these novels um how might they best do that there is my website amandeepsandhu.com thank you thank you for inviting me that ends our program for today with amandeep sandhu Punjabi author who was at the time artist in residence at Schloss Solitude. If you would like to find out more details about our programming, please look to the show notes and follow the links. This is Angeline Fisher from English Breakfast signing off, wishing you the very best wherever you may be in the world. Until the next time. <laughs> <laughs>